3: Good evening. I am Abby Newton, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Thanks for tuning in this evening. Now, whether you celebrated Easter or not, I hope your weekend was happy and memorable, despite the loss by our mighty Spartans. And I'll let you decide whether or not you want to cheer for that other Big Ten school up the street. And tonight on Exposure, we'll be talking to Professor Kirkendall and Michael Santimbroso about the right to about um, the same-sex marriage legislation, and Professor Dale Bellman about the right-to-work laws in Michigan. Later on the show, we speak with Drew Kim, a professor in the College of Engineering, about the college's outreach efforts and their new robots. Uh, Lastly, we will conclude our show with a visit from the Royal Improv Players. In the last week, the Supreme Court has been occupied with two Supreme Court cases regarding gay marriage. The first challenged the Defense of Marriage Act of 1996, and the second challenged California's ban on gay marriage. In the studio with me now are two Michigan State law professors. You want to introduce yourself?
4: Thank you. My name's May Kirkendall, and I've been here for quite a few years. And I'm Michael San Ambrosio and I've been here for almost two years now.
3: Well, welcome to Exposure. Thank you. you. Now, first off, um, what I want to do is really break down what's happening with these same-sex marriage cases. So for those who are uncertain, um, what is all this legislation about in the Supreme Court?
4: Well, it's not exactly legislation. It's two uh, separate cases having to do with um, laws that have been on the books for a bit. In the case of the federal side, it's a law that says no matter what states say marriage is – for the federal purposes, like immigration, Social Security, filing your taxes, we only think of marriage as between a man and a woman. So that's been on the book since 1996, and it's been sort of working its way through the courts. Uh, with a nine, Eight states now have same-sex marriage, so there are people in eight states who are married in the eyes of their state, but the federal government says they're not married. And Mrs. Windsor of New York was married for many years well, she got married in Canada, but the point is she had to pay taxes when her wife died as though her wife were a total stranger. So she paid 360 some 1000 dollars in estate taxes, and she's challenging the law as unconstitutional. I'm now turning to my colleague to have him explain the other case. Um, and let me just
5: add a point to the DOMA case. Um, so what this means is that although there's eight states which have enacted same-sex marriage, Those marriages in those states, because they're not recognized under federal law, or are what Justice Ginsburg described in uh, one of the the DOMA case during the oral arguments before the Supreme Court as skim milk uh, type of marriage. It's not the full marriage that's available to heterosexual couples in those same states. Now, in California... Um, what's the, the, the other case involves Proposition 8, which was a citizen initiative in which the voters of California voted to define marriage as between a man and a woman and to prohibit same-sex marriage. So that's also been challenged below in the district court and has come up on appeal to the Supreme Court, and it's being challenged on equal protection grounds.
3: Okay. And um, the justices, again, are still in very much still in discussion. Do you think they will come across a decision soon or, I mean, if ever, because it is such a huge issue?
4: Well, they will dispose of the cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a question of whether they will reach what's called the merits. So there are procedural mm-hmm. issues that are um, more complicated than usual when you have a high-profile case at the court. And they have to do with Article 3, which is, says that for federal courts, you can't have a – case before the court unless there's a true case or controversy, meaning two people or there's an injury. There are two adverse parties. So for uh, they're differently complicated, and I'll pass to my colleague to explain the different way that they're co- uh, complicated.
5: Well, so in, the, in the, the case challenging Proposition 8 in California, um, the party that's uh, defending uh, so, I'm sorry, let me back up. So, in the district court, the federal district court below held that Proposition 8 was unconstitutional. And then that was, decision was appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and now up to the Supreme Court. The party that's appealing it before the Supreme Court is are the proponents of the citizens' initiative. So, they are the people who actually put the initiative on the ballot. But there's a question about whether they are a proper party, whether they can show an actual injury. Because normally the state would defend the statute's constitutionality or the law's constitutionality, but in this case, the state of California decided not to defend its its uh, constitutionality. So there's a question about whether the court should actually rule on on the decision. But if it does rule on the merits, and it will rule one way or the other on, on, on the case, um, I wouldn't expect a decision probably before June. Usually the court waits until the end of its session for its kind of most significant cases. So we probably won't be seeing a case right. anytime.
4: If soon. If I can interject, they will announce something. What they announce could be that we've decided we should never have heard the case and we're sending it – we're dismissing it, which mm-hmm. would mean the Ninth Circuit's opinion remains intact, which would mean there is a gay marriage in California from then on. Um, they could also say those parties had no standing. The parties who are trying to argue that the the proposition banning gay marriage is constitutional, they could say they have no standing. And in that case, they didn't have standing in the Ninth Circuit either. So the district court would be intact. But they have limited jurisdiction. They can't necessarily tell – or that judge can't tell all of California what to do. So then you'll have a complicated situation in California where some people – may be able to get married and the clerk's offices that his uh, holding affected. So that's complicated.
5: <clears throat> and on the other end of the spectrum, it is possible that the court will issue a broad ruling and say that you must have same-sex marriage Um, throughout the country, that it's a violation of equal protection to deny same-sex marriage anywhere. So there's a number of different possibilities. You could say there have to be same-sex marriage everywhere, there doesn't need to be same-sex marriage anywhere, or there has to be same-sex marriage, in effect, in California. And those are kind of the three basics.
4: Okay, but let me say that my colleague and I, Professor San Ambrosio, basically agree that it's very unlikely the court is going to have an aggressive opinion, say, sort of sneering and saying there's just no right to same-sex marriage, this is silly, it doesn't – you know, no such thing. There might be four judges willing to say that, but they're not going to ever get a fifth vote to have sort of a very negative anti-gay marriage opinion.
5: That's right. So it's more likely between either a a California-specific case or perhaps they might decide it in such a way as it affects a few other states um, or a kind of a broad ruling. Um, And that's kind of the, those are the most likely outcomes. And people differ on what they think would be the most likely between those.
4: On the DOMA side, do you want us to tell you that? one? that's complicated. Sir, go ahead. All right. The problem there is that under the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, no marriage is recognized by the federal government if it's same sex. So Mrs. Windsor, as I said, uh, her wife died. She's a widow. And so she had to pay estate taxes in a large amount because she was a legal stranger. So she basically sued the United States and said, give me my money back. She's my wife. And... um, So that's adversity. The United States is refusing to give her her money back, and she wants her money back. The problem is, in that one, President Obama says, well, I'm enforcing the law because it's the law, but I refuse to defend it in court. I think it's unconstitutional. So the argument there is, at the Supreme Court, can we really have adversity when both of the parties to the case agree on what would be the proper outcome? So there you've got the uh, Committee of the House appointed. Uh, an attorney to make arguments on behalf of the constitutionality and I think we shouldn't go any farther than that other than to say it's a complicated Mm -hmm. technical question of law and um, we think that they will decide it on the merits. I think we agree.
5: Yeah, we think they're much more likely to decide the DOMA case on the merits. I I feel pretty certain of that and I also think that DOMA um, is uh, more likely to fall uh, than than Prop 8, although I'm I'm actually I'm optimistic that Prop 8 will also be struck down as, as constitutional. But I think it's more likely that DOMA, sec, uh, the section that defines marriage uh, for federal law as between a man and a woman, more likely that that's going to be struck down. Justice Kennedy, who you may have heard is kind of a very pivotal justice uh, on the court and in this case, um, has expressed concerns about the fact that the federal government is defining marriage and kind of intruding on an area that has been traditionally uh, a state. Uh, a State area. The states have the right to define uh, marriage, and so I think that might um, tip the balance uh, in favor of um, striking down DOMA as well. Although it would, it would, it would still, I think, four justices want to strike it down on equal protection grounds. So we could, they might have some different reasons for striking
4: it down. Right. So the, the equal protection <laughs> argument is pretty strong there, because basically you have a married couple in Massachusetts who's same sex, and you have a married couple who's not. And they're treated differently, even though, as far as Massachusetts is concerned, they have an identical legal status. So, Thea, some people said the woman's name is Thea. Thea Windsor, or no? I guess her her wife was Thea. She said if she had been Theo, then she mm. would have all her money.
3: Okay. Now, do you think all of the talk of you know these recent mm. discussions? Do you think it'll lead to more and more as the time progresses?
4: More and
3: more. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, More and more action in the courts and more and more people speaking out against gay marriage. I mean, either further than they already have.
5: Well, I I, I think it depends on what the court's ruling is. So if they strike down DOMA, um, all that means is that if states decide, whether by court, legislature, or voter initiative, to enact same-sex marriage, those marriages will be recognized under federal law, and it's very important because there's over a thousand different federal programs that uh, that use marriage as a proxy for certain benefits, um, and so that has a real effect. And so, then those marriages will be full marriages in every sense in those states. Where Could I interject
4: been here? And I don't think there would be much public reaction because it's not terribly visible to make a change mm-hmm. of that sure. nature.
5: Mm-hmm. So if they rule on the Proposition 8 case on a narrow ground that only applies to California, or they kick it because of uh, the, they consider the parties are not the proper parties for the court to decide the case, um, then you know they'll continue to be um, litigation. And uh, as well as advocacy uh, on, by different parties. But I think the DOMA case, if the DOMA case is decided on equal protection grounds, advocates of same-sex marriage will use that as an argument why there should be same-sex marriage everywhere. If, you federal, if the federal government can't um, uh, ignore the state's uh, the state's, uh, same-sex marriage, um, why should the states be able to prohibit same-sex marriage? So they'll try to use that argument to extend the
4: rights in other places.
3: Mm-hmm. And do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? We're running a little short on time, but if you'd like to add anything else.
4: Well, I guess this is uh, very exciting for people who have been advocates for (laughs) gay marriage. It started, uh, there's a man very well known named Evan Wolfson who's been working on it practically since he graduated from law school back in maybe, when was that, 84? Mm And um, so, in other words, gay advocates are extremely excited about it. They feel they had a respectful hearing. So even if they don't get what they're looking for on the Prop 8 case, they don't think they'll be disrespected. Oh, and Mrs. Windsor, you know, she's 82 years old, and she was very ex- excited, and she was always closeted. And so she said, afterwards, she said, I'm an open lesbian, and I just sued the United States of America. <laughs>
3: That's a statement for you. Yeah would you like to add anything else?
5: Um, well, I, I think that's a, that's a great way to end. But uh, I, I actually clerked for a, a judge in Hawaii who uh, kind of uh, ruled on the very first uh, same-sex marriage case. Um, that was the Hawaii court ruled that it was a violation of equal protection not to grant same-sex marriage. That ultimately led to DOMA because Congress thought that that law would be um, then expand throughout. So I, I think it would be very satisfying to see DOMA finally um, struck down um, and I would be also extremely happy um, if they uh, strike Proposition Eight down and, and with a broad ruling. Um, but if if they strike DOMA down, then I think that um, you know there's going to be real significant progress.
3: Well, thank you very much for coming in tonight. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.
5: Thank you.
1: You're listening to Impact Exposure.
0: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
5: Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues.
7: Your source for great blues music, news, and concert information.
0: Only
6: on Impact Primetime.
0: Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council.
1: Now back to
0: Impact Exposure. Impact
3: Exposure, I'm Abby Newton. Now, the Clean Water Action Project works to protect Michigan's lakes and rivers. Impacts Michelle Fagala got to know this organization and reports on its purpose.
2: My name is Steve. I've been running around out here for Clean Water Action. We work to protect Michigan's lakes and rivers, so we're doing that job today through community organizing and a fundraiser.
8: Ever have someone knock on your door and talk your ear off until you buy his or her product? You know, those really persistent individuals who won't leave you alone until you listen to what they have to say? Well, I stumbled upon an organization that does knock on your door, but their main goal isn't to get your money. A group of citizens at Clean Water Action are spreading a message that any Great Lakes loving Michigander would want to hear about. At this nonprofit organization, certain employees, called canvassers, go door-to-door relaying their message to everyday citizens. I followed around long-term employee Steve picky and discovered what exactly occurs during a canvassing interaction.
2: I've been showing off this blue highlighted issue. Go ahead and check it out. While you're looking at that, I'll just explain the issue. I'm sure that everyone has heard that both our governor and the president have come out in support of more renewable business coming into Michigan. Mm -hmm. We think it sounds great, but so far neither one of them has made good on that campaign promise yet. So this year, Clean Water Actions, holding them both accountable with over a quarter of a million voters in Michigan alone. Showing that we're watching their follow through this year.
8: Being that there are many environmental issues just in Michigan, I begin to wonder how this organization keeps up. Field canvassing director and former MSU student Mary Brady says the political climate has a big impact on the top issues on the radar of Clean Water Action.
1: Uh, number one, uh, first and foremost, is you know what what is uh, most important as far as uh, you know Michigan's environment and public health and working to protect um, you know folks who live here in the state. Um, you know from um, you know, uh, impacts to their drinking water uh, impacts to their you know, their lifestyles, um, the quality of life, and you know their health so uh, those are I would say the two main things you know, that political climate you know is this something we can realistically move, um, but most importantly is really uh, the issues themselves. Um, you know, do we want fracking here in Michigan, uh, something that could you know have a huge impact on the quality of our waters uh, statewide. You know, no, we really don't. Uh, is it something that um, you know, has gotten a lot of movement over the last year? No, it, uh, it hasn't. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to stop working on it. It's too important of an issue.
8: Brady points out a very key issue that clean water action pushes, the banning of fracking. Fracking, also known as hydraulic fracturing, is the process of drilling and injecting fluid into the ground at a high pressure in order to fracture shale rocks to release natural gas. Besides wasting an extreme amount of water in the process, fracking also spreads methane gas and toxic chemicals, which could contaminate nearby groundwater. After learning more about this nonprofit organization, I wondered if other students my age knew about these environmental issues. Brady says she thinks that college students are one of the most important target demographics because these environmental issues will affect their futures. Uh, college students
1: are uh, play a huge role uh, in the work that we do, um, not only here in Michigan but in uh, all the states that clean water is present. Um, you know, being, uh, you know, um, Active, um, you know, paying attention to what's going on, uh, and really, um, you know, understanding the, the huge impact that um, you know environmental quality is going to have on our lives. Um, you know, my parents, uh, you know, what, what happens with fracking isn't going to impact them um, nearly as, as much as it will impact you and I and folks who are currently students at Michigan State. Um, this is you know, what's happening now. So, yeah, I, I see college students as being a huge, huge benefit to the um, you know, environmental movement and activism in general.
8: Besides writing letters to the government officials or working for an organization like Clean Water Action, Brady says simply environmental understanding and awareness are steps in the right direction. So next time you hear a knock at your door, try not to assume the worst. You may be like me and gain some insight into the environment around you. For your Impact News, I'm Michelle Fogali.
3: The College of Engineering at Michigan State was recently granted $500,000 by the National Science Foundation. This money will fund a variety of projects, but many have to do with outreach. The college is exploring ways to increase the desire of young people to enter careers in engineering. The money is also being used to help middle and high school teachers improve their career skills. To do this, they're using robots. Now I sat down with Drew Kim, the assistant to the dean and principal investigator, to talk about the recent grant. Now, you are involved with a very interesting thing. It's called Research Experiences for Teachers. What is this exactly?
9: So, the uh, purpose of the project is to really create innovative and creativity focused teachers teaching in our school systems, like middle and high school students, and as well as uh, community colleges. Uh, We all know that uh, uh, many of the teachers in the STEM area science, technology, engineering, and uh, mathematics. We have a tendency to teach the same material over and over in the same way, um, and so what we're looking for is a really an innovative and hands-on approach to the sciences and engineering. So that's this is what uh, it's about. It's uh, targeting teachers as their professional development.
3: The whole purpose of this program is to refine teaching skills and come up with more exciting ways of teaching in the STEM areas, Absolutely,
9: correct. absolutely. And so
3: how do the robots really help that?
9: Well, I think robot is, as uh, most people recognize, it's really a thrust for the future, engineering. And, uh, you know, robots are everywhere, whether it be in homes or or, uh, industry, uh, environmental, everywhere. And so we use the robots because it has such a nice interdisciplinary nature. Uh, There are various engineering uh, sciences that are involved. And we employ all of those disciplines to build a robot and to compete.
3: And so if I was a middle school or high school teacher and I wanted to get involved with this project, what would my first day be like?
9: Your first day will be uh, the Summer Institute. We have a two-day, pretty uh, intensive uh, training. And so we'll connect you with uh, several faculty members that are doing different research opportunities. Uh, We also show them various ways that we uh, do research, uh, research methods, and also we also go through the safety methods. Um, And so we bring in outsiders, faculty members, and we do tours of the facilities. So it actually takes about two days, and the last couple of years we've been doing a lot of fun things, like we actually take all the teachers over at the Kellogg Biological Station, and so we work hard during the day. And uh, in the evening, we just get to know each other, and faculty and uh, teachers get mingled. And that's one of the things, breaking down the barrier between university faculty and uh, high school, middle school teachers. The Summer Institute, uh, the research portion actually takes about six weeks. But this is an ongoing one-year project, and it continues each year. Uh, we employ about 12 teachers surrounding uh, area, as well as Detroit and Grand Rapids. What's unique about our program is that we really focus on uh, women, um, all-girls schools, as well as highly underrepresented uh, schools.
3: And the teacher, once they complete the project, what Mm -hmm. do they walk away with?
9: Well, I think that uh, when you talk with our teachers, they really like the experience of being involved with the research topics. And they're not just helping faculty members do their project, but rather they're engaged in their own project. And so what they do is that as they uh, go through their research and they get involved hands dirty, that sort of thing, uh, they also develop curriculum that is suitable for their classroom. And um, uh, we also develop, help them develop hands-on activities.
3: And you've been working with robots. So how does that fit in?
9: Well, we've been working with robots um, uh, several years ago now. And uh, we started with the first Lego League uh, and involving students that are as young as nine-year-old all the way up to the uh, high school seniors. And now we're having uh, college students. Uh, be involved in mentoring and, and teaching our young, future engineers. And um, we have, uh, in four years, uh, sponsoring one team all the way to now, we're sponsoring about 40 teams. So we own pretty much uh, about a one-fifth of all the teams in the uh, state of Michigan.
3: The robots that they produce, what are the different tasks that they have been doing?
9: Well, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, Dr. Shabotan, who is our uh, principal investigator, and, and uh, uh, we've been working together like eight, nine years in the past, we developed what's called a f- robotic fish. <laughs> and so uh, when you, you know, in nine years, that has really developed into a super wonderful colliding fish. And uh, you can't really tell that uh, it's a robotic fish. Because it moves very smooth and uh, it actually uses very little power, and so you're not, you know, when you open up, all you're going to see is just you're not going to see a whole lot of things that are uh, parts that circuits, and it's actually powered by very little uh, battery, and um, the the uh, speed and the uh, direction is actually uh, navigated by what's called an electroactive polymer, which is sort of like a plastic. That serves as fins and tails. That's one of the things that's really neat. Um, we usually have the middle and high schoolers come through, and they just love that fish. <laughs> um, we also have um, a number of Dr. Ning Shi is a world expert in uh, his robotics programs, and uh, they're going to see uh, huge robotics that are that are uh, employed by the industry, like the GM and others. And it's pretty neat to see all that. Uh, we have also robots that um, are, are used for health. And so they're going to see all kinds of different robots uh, in their application.
3: And I understand, too, that uh, there's a robot, robotics engineering state tournament. And it's the first. Michigan is the only state to do this. Can right. you talk about that?
9: Well, robotics, it's called specifically VEX Robotics. And it's one of those programs that are really geared to produce a lot of future engineers. And it's been said that uh, middle and high school students that are involved with that program, um, they're much more likely to become engineers and scientists in the future. And so we we got involved with the VEX Robotics a few years ago and we built a number of programs and we again we utilize our college engineering students a lot to mentor them and we also train the coaches and so we always wanted to sort of uh, serve as the the mecca of the uh, vex robotics and the opportunity came up that we were actually asked as a first in the nation to host a state tournament and so this year uh, February 24th we hosted the uh, the first ever vex robotics championship at the Jennison Field House, and as you know, Jennison Field House brings a lot of history, and it was just everybody loved it, and uh, it, it was terrific. We look forward to doing that again next year.
3: Did the fish make its debut?
9: Oh yeah, fish <laughs> is always active, <laughs> right? Well, and, that's good. Yeah, so and each year the vex robotics has its own uh, task, and this year is. Uh, picking up the sandbags and putting it in the trough, and, and four robots compete with one another, and, and two receive the highest score. And uh, uh, this year, the one of the sponsored teams, the York uh, Youthville, actually won the whole state tournament. So we were very happy with that.
3: It's like the gladiator of robots.
9: Exactly, exactly.
3: (laughs) Um, Also, the College of Engineering is trying to really do a lot of outreach, as you were saying, to try to motivate these kids to be engineers, to be science teachers and things like that. What are some of your other programs?
9: You know, we we have grown in the last 10 years. Uh, What is so neat about our program is it's also self-funded. The university doesn't uh, uh, sponsor anything. It's just we go outside of the university and we fund Uh, our programs, and it it ranges from the elementary level where Lego Robotics is very popular. As you know, probably the Grandparents University. This is one of the first programs that ever gets filled up uh, each year, and uh, we're excited about that. And then we have the the middle school program to introduce them to various types of engineering. And what's neat about our programs are that... uh, the professors are actually teaching the courses. Every every uh, topic that we introduce to students, professors work with the graduate students to help the students, and so they really get a terrific hands-on activities. And then we have a number of high school programs, like the robotics engineering. Uh, we even had the last year we introduced the international Spartan engineering program, where uh, s- students from several countries represented for two weeks here, and that was pretty neat. Um, We have one of the uh, longest-running programs, High School Engineering Institute, that's been running about over 40 years now. And uh, uh, because of its popularity, we had to actually grow from, expand from one program. This year, we're offering three of those programs. And then uh, the Beacon Science Technology Center, which, uh, again, the NSF sponsors, and uh, we've been running that program. At the Keller Biological Station, which is focused on really integrating biology, evolution, and computer science, so the students that are geared towards biology, evolution, and and uh, as well as the um, computer science and engineering are invited to attend those.
3: Well, it sounds like you've got a lot going on in the Absolutely. College of Engineering. That's great. Do you have anything else you'd like to add?
9: Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, I'm a parent as well, and one of the things that I really enjoyed watching is that, you know, parents tend to get involved with the children based on their age. And uh, we love seeing our parents not only involved with their kids, but involved, volunteer with us, and and, uh, uh, partner with us in, in growing future engineers for U.S.
3: And if people would like to find more information, can they access your website?
9: Absolutely. And what is that? And the website is uh, wwwegrmsuedu forward slash futureengineer.
3: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Well,
9: thank you for having me. It was very enjoyable.
3: Venezuela was shocked when their president, Hugo Chavez, passed away. Impact's Michele Colonna reports on how the country responded to Chavez's death and how America reacted.
0: We are all Chavez was the saying chanted by a crowd of supporters outside of the Caracas Hospital in Venezuela in early March, where President Hugo Chavez lay on his deathbed, according to BBC News. Since Chavez's death on March 5th, Vice President Maduro has assumed the position of interim president, taking over presidential duties until the upcoming election on April 14th. In the midst of his campaigning, or what many may call acting, Maduro has put Chavez's face on everything, reminding the public that the current interim president would have had his support. Running against Maduro is opposition leader Enrique Capriles, a man who is trying to reveal the true Maduro to the people of Venezuela. It's no secret that the policies of both candidates are definitely different. Professor Edward Murphy, an assistant professor of history and a member of the Global and Urban Studies Program here at Michigan State University, says that if Enrique Capriles takes office, Venezuela is likely to see change both domestically and internationally.
7: It is the case that if he is elected, he would try to improve Venezuelan relations with countries like the United States. I also think that he would move, perhaps, to undo many parts of the Bolivarian Revolution. Particularly, he would probably change the oil industry. I imagine he would probably invite transnational oil companies back into Venezuela. I do think that he will try to continue some of the kinds of social programs that were put in place under Chavez, but that will be without the kinds of... Networks that all of the Chavistas had that made those social programs possible.
0: Professor Murphy's opinion seems to be widespread. According to Breitbart and townhall.com, recent polls have shown that only 6% of Americans favored President Chavez. Back on MSU's campus, students' opinions seem to reach the same conclusion.
7: As an American, I would say that it is advantageous for America to have a leader whose policies are opposite that of Hugo Chavez because frequently many of his policies have been to verbally attack the United States and oppose it at many of its foreign policies aims and essentially try to annoy it diplomatically.
0: That was Cody Schultz, an international relations freshman at MSU. He agrees that an opposition leader would indeed be the more preferred choice for the Venezuelan presidency, especially where the United States is concerned. According to Professor Murphy, Chavez was the answer to the crises of the broken political parties. Now, if Maduro is elected, he believes there will be more continuity of the Chavez regime. However, because of the charismatic differences between former President Chavez and candidate Maduro, he says the Bolivarian revolution that Chavez put in place will have to change.
7: If it's to be successful, I think that Maduro will really need to make the links between what the government is doing in terms of its social programs very solid and very real. And he also probably will have to figure out how to bring in some other sectors into the Bolivarian Revolution.
0: Other Michigan State students have given their two cents about Venezuela's big decision as well. Franco Gabrielli, a James Madison freshman, is from Casillas do Sul, Brazil. He, too, is in agreement that Venezuela needs change.
2: It should be someone completely different. I mean, I guess Hugo Chavez closed the market. He even enemies in every country in the world. The only country they affiliated themselves with was Cuba, and that didn't work. They should open the market, have a democratic leader, have elections every four years. They haven't had elections like that last 12 years.
0: Professor Murphy said that regardless of the rising opposition groups and anti-Chavez opinions, support for the Chavez administration, administration still lingers around the country, and it became very apparent after his death.
7: He won the elections last fall with about 54 percent of the vote, but also with a very, very passionate following. So for his hardcore supporters, his death was a tragedy, and you could really see that in the way in which they came out on the streets and reacted to it.
0: In just a couple short weeks, Venezuela will be electing a new president. Now, whether current interim President Maduro or opposition leader Enrique Capriles will assume the presidency is in the hands of the Venezuelan people.
7: If you're an American and you have American interests at heart, you'd rather see someone else in charge.
0: For Impact News, I'm Michaela Colonna.
3: On March 28th, Governor Rick Snyder signed legislation officially making Michigan the 24th right-to-work state in the United States. What is right-to-work? And what does it do to the state, you may ask? Well, Dale Bellman, a professor in the School of Labor and Industrial Economics at Michigan State, is here to shed some light on the topic. Well, welcome to Exposure.
6: Thank you very much.
3: Now let's get right to it. For those who don't know, can you explain what a right-to-work law is?
6: A right-to-work law, at least the type that has been passed for Michigan, allows individuals who are employed in an establishment where there is a collective bargaining relationship to not pay either union dues or agency fees, but still receive the benefits of the contract, the higher wages, due process, and so on.
3: So who are the opponents of this and who are the supporters?
6: The supporters are – tend to be conservative Republicans at this point, uh, tend to be a number of uh, large corporations. Tend to be some astroturf organizations that are heavily supported by, say, the Koch brothers. The opponents, of course, labor unions, uh, that's a major group that doesn't support, you know, is opposed to right to work at this point. There are other groups that are associated with them or see that they have a coalition and may be affiliated with them. But in general, uh, it's labor unions who are vocal opponents.
3: And why exactly are they opponents of it?
6: They're opponents because they see this as, one, about free riding. Uh, And what that is is that, as I said, under U.S. labor law, a union has to represent all the workers who are covered by – who are in the collective bargaining unit, covered by the collective bargaining contract, whether they're paying dues or not. So, for example – no one is compelled to join a union. They do have to pay agency fees. And, you know, despite, despite the difference, union dues tend to be higher than agency fees. Uh, people who are in a shop are paying the agency fee get almost as much representation as a union member. They're not permitted to vote in union elections. Now what we have with right to work is someone can pay nothing in, but let's suppose that they get in trouble with a foreman. The union is required under the duty of fair representation to represent them in the grievance procedure and possibly spend thousands of dollars on an arbitration uh, to protect their right to hold a job. And so the person is not contributing into this collective endeavor to improve the workplace, but is getting most, if not all, of the benefits back. Essentially, the labor movement is weaker, wages are lower, the workforce uh, is less able to protect itself, and therefore, this provides a better business climate. That's – frankly, that's the logic. Most of the time, one doesn't follow the logic through quite – that way, one simply puts the claim forward. But it's about essentially weakening both organized labor and the position of all employees uh, in a state. And it is true that uh, employees in right-to-work states earn about $1,500 a year less than employees in non-right-to-work states even after controlling for things such as industrial mix.
3: So what does it do to the Michigan economy? Or what will it do, do you think?
6: Well, likely very – little. Uh, what's, what? I mean, there'll, there'll be changes in net. It's not going to cause us to grow faster. If there were gains from right-to-work right in terms of speeding up growth, the idea being, well, you know, if we as Tennessee can be a right-to-work state, we can steal jobs from Michigan, which was the basic logic of right-to-work uh, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Those gains are gone now. So Michigan doesn't win a significant number of jobs back by becoming right to work. But what – so we're not going to get faster growth of business, of GDP, or of jobs. As I said, to the degree that happened, that was all worked out by the 1980s since – the 1990s. There really isn't evidence that right-to-work or becoming a right-to-work state has economic advantages. It will reallocate income away from working people in Michigan toward businesses, towards corporations, and things like that. So, uh, you know, that, that will be an economic change for Michigan. Net income in Michigan probably isn't going to change a lot. But the sort of typical person in Michigan will be less well-off.
3: So why was the decision made then to make Michigan a right-to-work state, you think?
6: Well, uh, you know, the Republicans had a supermajority, and they won that in 2010. That has caused a number of changes in how the state is run. We rejiggered our taxation system to lower business taxes and impose taxes on individuals uh, in Michigan. So now pensioners are going to pay higher taxes. Uh, we, in doing this, we didn't solve our problem of funding education or local government. We just sort of transferred taxes from one hand to the other. This is another transfer of money from uh, a sort of typical w- employee in Michigan to businesses, so it seemed it doesn't. There's nothing very fancy about it. It has basically the same logic. There's also a political logic for the Republicans, which is that unions are important supporters of the Democratic Party. To the degree Right to Work weakens unions, and it's it will weaken some unions in Michigan, uh, then that's advantageous to the Republicans. So politically, it was very sense. It was as sensible as any of the other things that were done. Uh, over the last two years uh, in the legislature and with our governor.
3: And in terms of education, will it have an effect on Michigan State University?
6: Probably not. Uh, You know, what could happen? Some, when the contract, the CTU contract comes up, CTU will end up with a, union security clause that will be consistent with the right-to-work law, and it may lose some members. Uh, how many? Hard to say. It really depends from uh, the type of employer to type of employer. So it won't have a big impact on uh, MSU uh, at this point.
3: And then um, also, what are labor unions doing to try to combat the situation?
6: Well, there are a couple different pieces here. One is that there are a number of legal issues as to whether the law was properly drafted. I think the most compelling one is that the law as drafted includes essentially punitive penalties in it. And that's unique in right-to-work laws. Uh, it's unique in, under the National Labor Relations Act. The National Labor Relations Act only permits, except in one specific case, make whole remedies. So that, uh, for example, if you uh, fire a worker uh, in violation of the law, you have to bring the worker back. You have to make them whole. You have to cover their back pay. But you don't pay any penalty. This right-to-work law actually includes a penalty uh, for laying a worker off because they're not paying dues or other violations. And that's, that may well run afoul of the law of what you could do, at which point that part of the law will have to be stricken, whether how that will affect the rest of the law becomes complex. So there is a legal challenge there are unions that have negotiated extended contracts. And so long as they were in place before March 28th, uh, they can include union security provisions that require people pay agency fees uh, until they expire. So that, those are responses. I suspect union responses after the fact are really going to depend on the type of union. I don't expect uh, – the number of people who will stop paying dues in main auto to be very great. I don't expect that in construction. When you're up seven stories putting up structural iron, you want everyone to fee- to know that you have paid your union dues. They're all your brothers and sisters up there and uh, you depend on them. Uh, supermarkets when you bring in high school students and they're there for six months, I suspect a number of them are probably not going to pay dues. Uh, of course, someone will have to tell them that they don't have to pay dues, and that may not go on a whole lot. But clearly, there are a set of unions. You know, Will it happen in teachers? Hard to say. On the one hand, one could imagine a number of teachers deciding they didn't want to pay dues. On the other hand, given the degree to which uh, teachers are under attack generally, they may think that having a powerful union is very important to them. And teachers are, again, part of a social Structure at the schools, and it may not be acceptable to be there and not, uh, you know, take up your fair burden. So it really depends. We've never had right to work laws in heavily industrial, heavily unionized states. So I'm sure union membership will drop to some degree. How far? Not clear.
3: Well, thank you. That's all the questions I have. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
6: No. Thank you very much for having me here. You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure.
5: For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place.
4: A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too.
5: For some, just being in school can be a struggle.
0: I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're
5: not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People
0: look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't.
5: Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council.
0: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the
5: week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, The Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music impact
4: prime time
5: now back to
2: impact exposure
3: picture this you're on a stage in front of hundreds of people it's the day of the big show however you haven't prepared a script you're completely winging it you are a royal improv player this campus improv group performs around campus, but also acts as a close community for its members. This is a group of students who love performing, learning, and growing in the performing and creative arts. And those brave students are here today to perform and give us a little bit about their group. Would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm Logan Peterson. Uh, I've been doing improv uh, about as long as I've been at uh, MSU now. Uh,
7: I'm Brian Glover. I joined last year, and now I'm a
2: veteran, I guess. Seasoned veteran. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, Sam Peters. I've been doing improv since I was a freshman. Uh, next year, I'll, I will be a co-director. Uh, Bryce Maurer. I've been doing improv also since I've been a freshman. Also co-director next year. He's copying. <laughs>
10: <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm Grace Papalardo. Um I'm the director of this wonderful group, and I've been director for two years and been doing improv for four.
3: All right. Well, first, tell me about improv. What's it like to perform when you have no idea really what the show is going to go or what direction it's going to take?
10: Um, it's a, it's a lot of fun for us. Um, what we do is it sounds kind of weird, but we do rehearse. Um, so our practices are twice a week, and we um, we go through uh, like the skeleton of a game. So we'll have different scenarios, and we'll act out different scenes. Um, but when we put it on stage, we've never done that exact scenario before. Um, Does anyone want to chime in? Yeah.
2: Like, uh, <laughs> there are some ground rules to improv. They're, they're basic things that you do to make sure that uh, you're working well with the other person and that you, you aren't overstepping your bounds. Like, the biggest improv rule is yes, and. So whenever somebody suggests something, you say yes, and, and you add on to what they've said. You don't... Uh, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of whatever ludicrous thing somebody else says, you never shut them down yeah. You roll with it.
10: I'm a unicorn, yes, and <laughs> I love your horn, <laughs> or something like that. Um, oh, you're so
2: wacky. <laughs> yeah, so
10: there are, there are rules um, that really help
2: mm-hmm.
10: uh, the team work together and help scenes um, just sort of blossom and, and become something else on stage, which is pretty exciting to watch.
3: And how many members are in your group?
2: We have a core group of about, 10 to, <laughs> um, <laughs> about like 10 to 12, and then there are some... It's uh, about maybe... 16 now, actually. Okay. Well, well, like, well, well, we
3: <laughs> Their oh. co-directors this uh, is good. This all right. is really so, good. So. I see the team work <laughs> yes. right now. We ha-
2: and then there are some uh, additional <laughs> people kids. that sort of uh, come and go as they please. Mm-hmm.
3: Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, and what kind right. of performances do you do throughout the school year?
2: I uh, do... Brian, you oh, haven't said anything. Okay. <laughs>
10: Right. <laughs> <Go ahead, Brian. laughs> it's like, I don't
7: know. I don't uh, know. Do we perform? We perform improv at shows.
2: <laughs> we have a monthly show in the basement of Snyder Phillips. And uh, in addition to that, we've done things like we performed for uh, Model United Nations. We've done, we, uh, we uh, once a year, we go to Chicago to do the uh, college improv tournament. So we have other things that we do uh, in addition to our monthly shows. Mm-hmm. We did Laugh Fest this year as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. That's a new What's Laugh Fest? It's in uh, Grand Rapids. It's a. Uh, Annual comedy festival that spans a whole weekend. I think it's and two weeks. Actually, is it two weeks? Mm-hmm. Okay,
10: yeah. I think it's like two weeks. So yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really nice organization that um, puts together a comedy festival in um, in memory of Gilda Radner, the um, legendary Saturday Night Live performer, mm-hmm. um, and she tragically died of cancer. And so this this two week period um, supports um, cancer victims and those affected by. The, the illness, so it was. It was really fun for us. We had a great time and. We, we, like, we like making people laugh with our comedy. That's our, that's our goal. I mean, we hope so. Um, but it, it's, ni- it's nice to contribute to one, a bigger cause as one well. One thing
2: that uh, we did that we don't get to do that often, but um, a few times a year we got to interact with other people like us, other improvers. Hmm. And uh, we got to in, addition to, our doing, to, in addition to doing our own set, we got on stage and performed with other people, other improvers from other schools around Michigan. So it was a really unique experience. So the great thing about improv is you can, you can meet up with any improv people and and make a scene mm-hmm. out of nothing. It's like yeah. a pickup yeah. game of basketball. Mm-hmm. It is. <laughs> it, it really is. Yeah. It and really everyone is. can dunk. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, how satisfying! <laughs> That's great. Um, now, being an improv, I'm sure there are so many interesting stories <laughs> when you get on stage, and I, who knows what could happen. What are some interesting or I guess embarrassing stories you'd like to share? I don't know. Um,
2: that have happened on stage or off stage.
3: Either one, we'll take.
2: There have been a couple of sets of pants that have ripped. Oh, <laughs> yeah. we have
3: had—we've actually
10: had. I know Dave's pants ripped one time. That, yes,
2: that happened. I uh, ripped in my pants, but it was already there. Yeah, you <laughs> it, was just, you just, it just expanded. You it was—it was, did, it was there me. for fashion's sake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well,
10: um, we—I have—I have a personal embarrassing story. This is—it's more than embarrassing. We were on our way to uh, the college improv tournament in Indianapolis, actually and we're all two years ago yeah and we're all piled into my suv and i was like yeah we are totally safe i've never gotten in an accident i've never gotten a ticket and it's like the dead of winter and we're driving into a blizzard at like eight o'clock at night and it's dark and so you know we're just having a great time bryce is watching a movie bobby fisher searching for bobby fisher and um you know we're just hanging out and all of a sudden um My tire hits a patch of black ice, and we, like, I mean, barrel into the ditch. And as we're going down, I'm, like, screaming, like, We're okay! We're okay, guys! Like, we're okay! I'm
2: clutching his arm, dear life. My arm is quite
10: clutched. And so, I mean, I don't know how this happened, thank God, I just lost a headlight on my car. We were all safe. Mm -hmm. Not even an airbag. As soon as we
2: realized that we were okay, that everyone was that everything was all right, we just started like cracking jokes about it.
1: (laughs) Improving again. Some of us did. I was crying. Yeah, she was having a
2: mental breakdown. We were, we were, we were laughing at everything. Um, Well, we missed a a, a very sizable tree by about a foot, so it could have been. Yeah,
3: I'm glad to hear that.
2: Could have been the end of Royal. Yeah, but the moral of the story is, yeah,
10: don't never give up. We made (laughs) it to the competition, and it went. Great. We persevered. So, we did, so that's, that's like my, that's
2: <laughs> that's my good, story.
3: That's a pretty sizable story. Yeah, yeah. That's was, that was good. Now, um, again, with improv, I guess kind of give the audience an idea of the preparation before the show, and then also when you get to the show, does someone say, okay, guys, here's what it's going to do and go, or how does the actual organizing of the show happen? Brian? <laughs> so we've got a quiet improv. <laughs> uh, well,
2: before each show, we do have a ritual animal sacrifice. Yeah. Ooh. No, what what animal <laughs> it, it varies whatever one we of our, our members on. On. is yeah. that why Brian's
3: quiet
9: yeah,
10: yeah, so um like like Sam was uh saying we 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 don't have a unfortunately anything that exciting um but we uh we do just some quick warm- up games um we get just sort of we get ourselves psyched for the show and then um what we do is because our audience is pretty loyal and they've been coming to shows. All year, we give like a quick description of each game before we do it, um, and they're really, you know, the audience gets really into the shows, and they help us clap people in, and and they're, you know, yelling prompts at us, and mm-hmm. their participation
2: really... really varies based on their level of inebriation. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine so. Uh, yeah. Well, to we, t- oh, go ahead.
2: Well, one of the things we try to do here, and it's a good thing that we have a strong base of people that come, uh, is that we we don't put somebody on stage unless we know that they're ready, mm-hmm. uh, because nothing's worse than going on stage, and your mind just is blank. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially you don't have anything prepared, you know, you're going in with a, a clean slate mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. not ready to paint the picture. right? You know. Or dunk the
3: basketball. <laughs> yeah. That's right, if you're not ready to dunk, you're going to miss <laughs> the net and
2: probably fall into the audience. You can't have that.
10: I think that's a really a good point, because we, we really do try to make sure people are comfortable on stage. And it sounds crazy, but you have to be prepared to make things up. Um, You have to be, you know, if you train your mind to, you know, keep keep generating ideas while you're, you know, yeah. These are these are
2: skills and characteristics that we work to keep honed and like oh like Mm -hmm. when we get back from over the summer like we have to we're pretty rusty we have to you know get Mm -hmm, these things back up to par Mm -hmm. yeah i raised my hand because i had something to say um (laughs) yes (laughs) no but also in regards to you know we don't put anybody out on stage unless we know they're ready or or whatever but uh as far as rehearsals and practices go anybody that wants to show up is allowed to come and Mm -hmm. participate we Mm -hmm. encourage people of all skill levels and all Mm -hmm. levels of hilarity to come and or just watch Mm -hmm. i think everyone here uh, came to improv having no experience. So yeah. right. I was very escape- afraid of all the people <laughs> when I first showed up. Brace yeah. well, was a natural. Well, I came with a torch, so.
3: Wow. <laughs> he came with an animal ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. now, what are some upcoming shows you have?
10: Sure, Um. so... Um, feel free to uh, check out our Facebook group um, on, uh, on Facebook, like I just said. Um, we're the Royal Improv Players, and it's R-O-I-A-L, Improv Players. Um, and we'll post um, updates about practices and shows there. Um, but our our next show is um, on April nineteenth at nine p.m. in the basement of the uh, in the Arca Theater in Snyder Phillips, um, and the, yeah, it's it's a really fun time. Um, we have a really great audience that comes, and it's actually um, my last show, and it's Logan's last show. Yep. So it'll be bittersweet. But it's been such an incredible ride. So it, it'll be it'll be a fun it'll be fun to see what happens on our last show.
3: Mm-hmm. And to test these improvers, we have designed a sort of. Um, I guess a little fake script. So what we're going to do is we're going to have three of them act out. You guys feel free to chime in if you want to join.
2: I haven't talked much,
3: though. <laughs> okay, Brian.
2: <laughs> Brian's, Brian's style is all about understanding,. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: So what we're going to do is we're going to pretend that these three are on a train, and they just got into the food car. So go ahead.
10: Excuse me. Um, I'd like to purchase a muffin. Is anybody work in this?
2: Yeah, problem? I'll help you. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I was getting catfish out of the back. Yeah.
10: Oh my you serve catfish on this train? I thought I it was I thought it was dry goods only.
2: Fresh caught. Fresh caught every day.
10: Oh my goodness. Well yep. I'll have uh let's see, I don't I don't eat really like seafood. Okay. I'm a vegan. Uh I'll have uh, you know, I'll have some celery sticks me, and uh, you know, whatever you got back there. Mm-hmm. Maybe some dips or something. Maybe I can, something. can
2: direct you to our uh, daily special. We have a uh <clears throat> we have an HLT. Oh. Uh <coughs> And that is a, a hamster lettuce and tomato sandwich, uh, and now that's extra crispy. If oh that's uh, what you're looking for, Look. a little salty, uh, you know. But we can we can get away with the salt a little bit.
10: Let let me ask you something. Is it the whole hamster, or is it, like, flayed? Like, is it like a hamster? It's pretty flayed. In, you know.
2: (laughs) Excuse me, you want to be hurrying up. Uh, I am starting to have flashbacks to time and gulag. (laughs) Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to stop. Listen,
10: I was in line first. This is America, and you're going to have to wait in line, okay, sir?
2: I don't know where you're from. All right, well, uh, shop's closed. I, I can't deal with this today.
3: I'm out. <laughs> well, excellent job. You guys did a fantastic job. Thank you for joining us tonight. <laughs> uh, with that, that concludes our show this evening. Uh, special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our production assistant, Will Meineke, and also thanks to our general manager, Aaron Young, and our station manager, Ed Glazer. Uh, your music breaks were from Kim V. and Aunt Julie's Theremin, a band from Michigan State, and um, they and other local bands will be playing at the Battle of the Bands at the Loft on Sunday. Now, also, tune in next Next week for Sexposure. Olin well, Health Center will join us in the studio to talk about all things sex when exposure turns into sexposure. Also, happy birthday to our very own Jack Burke. Now, keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week, I'm Abby Newton, Impact Exposure,
0: 89FM.
1: Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to
0: Impact Exposure.